Hey, hey, friends, this is Eric, and welcome to Anti-Visions. I'm in the middle of a series called Factor Fiction, composed of short segments, 10 minutes or so, where I read through Thomas Sowell's essay, The Real History of Slavery. Generally, I post one a week, sometimes more, and I'll continue to do so until I've finished reading all the way through. Be sure to look in the notes for the link to his book if you'd like to purchase a copy. Well, let's get started. I hope you enjoy. Abraham Lincoln, likewise, was never an abolitionist in the sense in which that word was used at the time, even though he publicly argued for an end to slavery for decades before he was in a position to put an end to it himself. When he first ran for president in 1860, abolitionists refused to support him, saying that the outcome of this election would make no difference, whether success be to the Democrats or the Republicans. Accordingly, the abolitionists ran their own candidate for president, even though he had no realistic chance of being elected and in fact split the anti-slavery vote so that Lincoln was elected with only a plurality. Even after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, the abolitionist movement split on whether to support him for re-election. Some abolitionists even criticized Frederick Douglass for purchasing his legal freedom rather than continue to be in danger as a fugitive slave because paying compensation for one's freedom was taken as a legitimization of slavery. It was the abolitionists' doctrinary stances and heedless disregard of consequences, both of their policy and their rhetoric, which marginalized them even in the North, and even among those who were seeking to find ways to phase out the institution of slavery so as to free those being held in bondage without unleashing a war between the states or a war between the races. Garrison could say the question of expedience has nothing to do with that of right, which is true in the abstract, but irrelevant in a world where consequences matter. Too often, the abolitionists were intolerant of those seeking the same goal of ending slavery when those others, including Lincoln, proceeded in ways that took account of the inescapable constraints of the times, instead of being oblivious to context and constraints. While the dilemmas created by slavery were particularly acute in the United States, similar conditions applied in some other Western societies. In 18th century Britain, Edmund Burke recognized the very same dilemmas for British colonies, such as those in the West Indies, and sought to devise ways around them. An opponent of the slave trade long before Parliament had been brought to that point by popular pressures, Burke put the problem, as he put so many other problems, in the context of the inherent constraints of circumstances. While seeing slavery as an incurable evil, Burke was concerned with what would happen to the slaves themselves after they were freed, as well as the implications of their freedom for the society around them. The minds of men being crippled by slavery, Burke said, we must precede the donation of freedom by developing in the enslaved people the capacity to function as responsible members of a free society. Therefore, he proposed the civilization and gradual manumission of Negroes in the two hemispheres. 
Later, he proposed to give property to the Negroes when they should become free. But nowhere did Berg view this as an abstract question without considering the social context and the consequences and dangers of that context. He rejected the idea that one could simply free the slaves by fiat as a matter of abstract principle, since he abhorred abstract principles on political issues in general. Thomas Jefferson likewise regarded emancipation all by itself as being more like abandonment than liberation for people whose habits have been formed in slavery. When Edmund Burke set forth his particular proposal to a colleague, he warned, quote, Its whole value, if it has any, is the coherence and mutual dependency of parts in the scheme. Separately, they can be of little or no use. Close quote. Burke's approach to slavery was, as to other issues, was in terms of the actual context and the constraints implied by that context, not abstract principles. As he said on another issue, quote, I do not enter into these metaphysical distinctions. I hate the very sound of them. Close quote. In America, John Randolph of Roanoke took a similar position. Quote, I am not going to discuss the abstract question of liberty or slavery or any other abstract question. Close quote. Today, Slavery is too often discussed as an abstract question with an easy answer, leading to sweeping condemnations of those who did not reach that easy answer in their own time. In 19th century America, especially, there was no alternative that was not traumatic, including both the continuation of slavery and the ending of it in the manner in which it was in fact ended by the Civil War, at a cost of one life for every six slaves freed. Many problems can be made simple, but only by leaving out the complications which those in the midst of these problems cannot so easily escape with a turn of a phrase, as those who look back on them in later centuries can. Even at the individual level, it was not always legally possible for a slave owner to simply set a slave free, for authorities had to approve in many states. When a motion was introduced into the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1769 to allow slave owners to free their slaves unilaterally, a motion seconded by Thomas Jefferson, there was anger at such a suggestion and the motion was roundly defeated. An unlimited power to release slaves into the larger society was considered too dangerous to leave in private hands. Many who have dismissed the anti-slavery words of the founders of the American Republic as just rhetoric have not bothered to check the facts of history. Washington, Jefferson, and other founders did not just talk. They acted. Even when they acted within the political and legal constraints of their times, they acted repeatedly, sometimes winning and sometimes losing. One of the early battles that was lost was Jefferson's first draft of the Declaration of Independence, which criticized King George III for having enslaved Africans and for overriding colonial Virginia's attempt to ban slavery. The Continental Congress removed that phrase under pressure from representatives from the South. 
when Jefferson drafted a state constitution for Virginia in 1776, his draft included a clause prohibiting any more importation of slaves. And in 1783, Jefferson included in a new draft of a, of a Virginia constitution a proposal for gradual emancipation of slaves. He was defeated in both these efforts. On the national scene, Jefferson returned to the battle once again in 1784, proposing a law declaring slavery illegal in all western territories of the country as it existed at that time. Such a ban would have kept slavery out of Alabama and Mississippi. The bill lost by one vote, that of a legislator too sick to come and vote. Afterwards, Jefferson said that the fate quote, unquote, of millions unborn was hanging on the tongue of one man and heaven was silent in that awful moment. Three years later, however, Congress compromised by passing the Northwest Ordinance, making slavery illegal in the Upper Western Territories while allowing it in the Lower Western Territories. Congress was later authorized to ban the African slave trade, and Jefferson, now president, urged that they use that authority to stop Americans from all further participation in those violations of human rights, which has been so long continued on the unoffending inhabitants of Africa, close quote. Congress followed his urging. As a historian summarized the actions of these early leaders, quote, if the founding fathers had done none of this, if slavery had continued in the North and expanded into the Northwest, if millions of Africans had been imported to strengthen slavery in the Deep South, to consolidate it in New York and Illinois, to spread it to Kansas and to keep it in the border South, if no free black population had developed in Delaware and Maryland, if no apology for slavery had left Southerners on shaky moral grounds, if in short, Jefferson and his contemporaries had lifted nary a finger, everything would have been different. Close quote. In short, the ideology of the American Revolution was not just words. Those ideas were not wholly without effect, even in the South, during the years immediately following the creation of the United States, for a number of Southern states eased legal restrict restrictions on private manumissions during that era, and many blacks were freed voluntarily. As a leading historian of slavery in the United States noted, quote, manumissions were in fact so common in the deeds and wills of the men of 76 that the number of colored freemen in the South exceeded 35,000 in 1790 and was nearly doubled in each of the next two decades. Despite growing apprehensions in the South following the bloodbaths in Santo Domingo, even as late as 1832, the Virginia legislature considered a bill to abolish slavery, though it was defeated by a vote of just 73 to 58. Okay, friends, I'm going to have to wrap up story time right now, and I will pick back up and read another 10 minutes of The Real History of Slavery by Thomas Sowell. Okay, you guys, have a good one. <laughs>